Introduction Jerusalem, the Emanation of the Giant Albion This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Nick Duncan Jerusalem, the Emanation of the Giant Albion by William Blake Introduction The Prophetic Books of William Blake Jerusalem Edited by E. R. D. McLagan and A. G. B. Russell London, A. H. Bullen, 47 Great Russell Street, 1904 To Algernon Charles Swinburne Preface Jerusalem the longest and most splendid of the prophetical books engraved by William Blake was first published in the form of 100 pages of text and illustrations, dated from South Moulton Street, 1804, though this date represents rather the beginning than the conclusion of its composition. It has twice been reproduced in facsimile, once separately and once much reduced in the three-volume edition of Blake's works by Messrs. Ellis and Yates in 1893, but it has never hitherto been printed in ordinary type, and those who have tried to study the prophetical books will realise the need for such a text if reading and reference are to be possible without inordinate strain and fatigue involved in the use of a facsimile. It is only when the complete works of Blake are readily accessible and legible that we may hope that the greatest of English mystics will be adequately studied and appreciated. And if this is to be, the divorce of the poem from its illustrations is an imperative, though nonetheless regrettable necessity. It has been our endeavour in the present edition to produce a text which shall be above all scrupulously faithful to the original, for easy reference to which we have retained the division and numbering of its pages. The text, down to the very eccentricities and inconsistencies of Blake's spelling, is as accurate as we have been able to make it. In the very few instances where we have inserted a necessary word or letter, it has been enclosed in a square bracket while the accidental repetitions, marvellously few when we consider the difficulties of the reversed writing entailed in Blake's process, have been marked by round brackets. In what is practically the Editio Princeps, we have felt this scrupulosity to be essential, even at the risk of incurring the accusation of confusion and pedantry. We would acknowledge our indebtedness, in common with all students of Blake, to the patient and sympathetic labours of Messrs. Ellis and Yates, and our personal obligation to the latter for his ready help and kindness. Our gratitude to Mr. Swinburne for the brilliant essay in which he was the first to divine the sanity as well as the splendour of the poet has been further increased by his, his gracious acceptance of the dedication of this book. July 1903. E. R. D. McLagan, A. G. B. Russell. Introduction. It would obviously be impossible to explain in a few pages so complex a symbolic system as that of Blake's works. And when it is remembered that any explanation has to be gathered from the books themselves, with no further key than their casual hints afford, and that of these books the larger part has been destroyed by Tatham and other admirers of the poet, 
it can hardly be supposed that each line of the prophetical books will ever be interpreted in a manner entirely satisfying. Nor can a simple significance be attached to each symbol, by which it can be translated in whatever context it may occur. For symbolism, whether it be that of Ezekiel, or that of the Apocalypse, or Dante, or of Blake, necessarily deals with truths too universal to be comprehended in literal formula, and confounds the commentator by its infinite application. But it may be useful to put together, however imperfectly, some of the clues and correspondences contained in Jerusalem, reserving for a further volume, which the editors have in preparation, any attempt at a complete exposition with justificatory references. Man is at once the stage and the protagonist in the drama with which Blake is concerned. The fourfold man, called symbolically by the name of Albion, our ancestor in whose sleep or chaos creation began. And his state depends on the union and agreement of the four elements that are met in him. Beside the humanity or central personality of the individual stand the spectre, the reasoning power, and the emanation, a word sometimes abridged into eon, the emotional and imaginative life, with the shadow, which seems to be desire, restrained and become passive, till it is only a shadow of desire. Where these are united, and especially when the spectre and the emanation, contraries in whose interaction all the other contraries are involved, are balanced and at peace, man is in a state of salvation, which Bohm calls temperature. When spectre and emanation have parted, man is in a fallen state, and can only be redeemed by their reconciliation. This fall into division and resurrection into unity is the main subject of Jerusalem, and indeed most of the prophetical books. For the parting of reason and imagination is the great tragedy, through which the spectre becomes cold and the emanation weak, the shadow turns cruel, and humanity is overcome by deadly sleep. Brackets, 15,6. A sleep, too, full of dreams in which man wavers between evil and good, drawn alternately by the male spectre and the female emanation, and so called by Blake hermaphroditic. A sleep from which only Christ the divine imagination can save fallen man by reuniting him with Jerusalem, his emanation, and saving him from the dominion of his spectre, the great selfhood called Satan. But man is not left to struggle unaided or unopposed. Around and within him is ranged an infinite host of spiritual powers, headed by the four Zoas, the living creatures in the vision of Ezekiel and St. John were the chief characters in Blake's mythology, standing somewhat in the place of Bohm's seven fountain spirits. These are named Urizen, Luva, Thamos, and Urthona, and their influence extends through a vast system of fourfold correspondences, in macrocosm and microcosm alike. Urizen is the intellect. He is called the ploughman, and rules in the zenith, in the south, in air, in the head and eyes of man. Luva is the emotional life. He is called a weaver and rules in the center, in the east, in fire, in the heart and nostrils. When generate, he is called orc, the child who resumes in himself 
all children born in the myths and shorter poems. Tharmas is the life of the senses. He is called a shepherd and rules in the circumference, in the west, in water, in the loins and tongue. In his region is the door of perception, and it is when this western gate is closed that man believes himself to have a body apart from his soul. Usona, the fourth sower, is that power known in its highest form as inspiration and in its lowest as instinct. He is called a blacksmith and rules in the nadia, in the north, in earth, in the womb and ears. He has a vehicular form named loss, brackets, the vehicle that is of inspiration, close brackets, the spirit of prophecy, and in certain sense the prophet Blake himself. But it must always be remembered that while it may be convenient to set down the four Zoas as the Lord's intellectual, emotional, sensual and instinctive life, these words are mere shadows of their true significance, which belongs to every plane of interpretation, so that to take the two great antagonists, Urizen and Loss, in art they stand for naturalistic and symbolic tendencies, in religion for dogma and mysticism in ethics for the outer rule of law and the inner rule of the gospel. Nor is it possible to attribute good or evil character absolutely to any of the Zoas without falling into the error of Ulro, which lies in attributing good or evil to individuals and not to states. In their unfallen state all are good, and in the fallen all are more or less evil. Brackets, CF. 43,2. For like men, they are liable to division in the parting of spectre and emanation, each sower having an emanation or female part assigned to him. These are named Ahania, Vala, Enion, and Enitharmon. Ahania is the emanation of Urizen, his eternal delight, and the story of her separation from him is told in the beautiful book named after her. Vala, the emanation of Luva, fills a far more prominent place and gives her name to a long book which Blake never engraved. She is nature in her sensual beauty, ever weaving her veil or net to catch the souls of the dead, i.e. those who have entered into bodily life. She is the false system of religion the shadow of the true Jerusalem. She appears sometimes in a double form as Tirzah, the lovely, with her sisters and as Rahab, who binds the red cord of blood in the window of the eye. She is Babylon, the mother of mystery, the harlot of the apocalypse. Inion is the emanation of Tharmas. Like Ahania, she plays but a small part in Jerusalem but she may be called a typical maternal power, as Orc is the child and Urizen the father. Enitharmon is the emanation and wife of Uthona Los, and we are told that where Los is time, she is space. In one of the typical pairs of contraries, corresponding to male and female, soul and body, and we might compare her to Shelley's intellectual beauty in distinction to the body's beauty of Vala, as Othona has been compared to Shelley's Demogorgon by Dr. Rudolf Kastner in his brilliant and suggestive essay on Blake. Footnote. In 
Die Mystik, die Künste und das Leben. Leipzig, 1900. It's difficult to make clear the exact relation of the Zoas to their several regions. These are not altogether identified with them, for certain of the Zoas fall from their own region into that of another. Brackets 59,11. Close brackets. And yet they partake of their nature. The Zoas are eternal states. The cardinal points, the regions of the sky, and all the chain of corresponding symbols are spaces. And the state and space form once more a parallel to male and female. But it may generally be said that all the states and spaces ranged under Urizen, for example, in the table to be found at the end of the index, partake of his intellectual nature. Not only are there innumerable spaces to be occupied, but the Zoas are parents of many children, countless, but generally reckoned as sixteen. Of these, only four appear much in Jerusalem, the sons of Los, Rintra, Palamberon, Theotormon, and Bromion, who correspond in a lower sphere to the Zoas, in their regular order. They are identified in the Book of Milton, in which they play a prominent part, with different forms of artistic energy. In a lower sphere come the States, to whom Blake assigned the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, brackets cf preface to chapter 2 close brackets and still lower in Ulro itself a place the sons and daughters of Albion brackets the 24 close brackets states with names often grotesque some of which contain allusions to Blake's earthly friends and foes each with his own emanation these may be taken as ideas and sensations respectively of man belonging particularly in this poem to his fallen state, and therefore discordant and continually endeavouring to usurp what is not theirs by right. The sons of Albion make up their starry or intellectual wheels, which make up the mill, Blake's not inappropriate symbol for logic, form at last the great polypus of rationalism. The daughters, who may be combined into Diasa and Rahab, and so represent to some extent the power of Vala, are cruel and drunken with blood, eager to sacrifice their friends in the mistaken morality of Druid religion. Against these sons, Los labours at his furnaces of enthusiasm, building his great city of Golganuza, Civitas Dei, the abode of spiritual art and religion, with its sculptured gates opening into every plain, a city beautiful in definite and minutely organized particulars, though set in the midst of Entuthon Benithon, the valley of abstract philosophy, and the lake of Udan Adan, the home of the indefinite, which Blake, like all true mystics, hated with all his soul. The twelve tribes and the sons of Albion, with their emanations, may be arranged in groups of three under the four Zoas, and in each case one brother absorbs his brethren, Reuben, Hand. Both orders, brackets, who are little heard of except in Jerusalem, close brackets, have allotted to them the counties of Britain in two elaborate schemes, brackets, pages 16 and 72. Close brackets. 
This plan of correspondences was doubtless fully worked out in Blake's mind, and may have been used in some of the lost books, but in Jerusalem it has not much real importance, and does undoubtedly present some serious difficulties. Geographical symbolism in general, however, and to a certain extent historical symbolism also, is of great importance in the interpretation of the prophetical books. For Blake, like the prophets of Israel, saw in contemporary events such as the French Revolution and the American War of Independence, and even his own movements, types of eternal things. Four continents, four countries of Europe, four towns of Great Britain, were seen by him as representatives of the Zoas, and in Jerusalem he makes great use of the quarters of London, Albion's city, as symbols of the regions of humanity in the mind of man, brackets, 38,43, close brackets. It's well to remember that the position of any places named must be calculated with reference to the London of 1800. The points actually named as south, east, west and north are Northwood, Blackheath, Hounslow and Finchley. Strange as the use of such familiar and commonplace names may seem in a poem of profound spiritual significance, it's easy for us to forget that Edom and Ammon and Gilead held for the contemporaries of Jeremiah small mystery of association, but were essentially neighbouring districts, used emblematically in religious poetry. And it was Blake's deliberate wish to parallel these places with his own geographical symbols in England, as may be observed from the way in which the two are often coupled together. The fourfold system here, briefly indicated, extends through many other spheres of correspondence. It is also connected with Blake's teaching of the four atmospheres named in Jerusalem, Eden, Beulah, Ulro, and Generation. In the microcosm of man, the four parts are often reduced to three, head, heart, and loins. It will be noticed in Jerusalem, brackets 42, 24, close brackets, that the fourth Zoa, Uthona Los, speaks of Albion as having slain, that is, introduced into corporeal, vegetated life, the other three Zoas, but as unable to kill the fourth. And this may be compared with the reduction of the tetrad to the triad by omission of the fourth member. Most of the triads in Blake's poems will be found to correspond with this one, e.g. creation, redemption, judgment, mercy, pity, peace. Such in the briefest outline are some of the more important points in the symbolic system. The application, like the system itself, is inevitably complex, for a passage has often many different interpretations in different spheres and one thread of meaning passes imperceptibly into another. For it must be continually remembered that Blake was writing, at least according to his own belief, an account of actual visionary experiences. And even if we translate vision into terms of the subliminal consciousness, the result remains unchanged, though its value may be affected. If Blake has drawn up a cipher system and translated the passions into Louvain, the method would have been absurd, but the writing would have been perfectly lucid to anyone possessed of the key. 
the seer must himself interpret his visions as much as his readers. Careless of the fate of his works, he seldom vouchsafed the explanations he could so easily have given. And it's only the laborious analysis of the two latest editors that has opened the way for those who care to follow it. But once the main principles are grasped, it is comparatively easy to understand the greater part of the prophetical books, though some passages must often occur which are perplexing even to an experienced reader. And there are many minor symbols with perfectly definite meanings, for Blake was never vague, which are difficult to explain with any certainty. It may perhaps be helpful to give a brief paraphrase of the beautiful poem contained in the preface to the second chapter, brackets to the Jews, close brackets, as an example of the way in which symbolism is used. The poem in question may really be said to narrate in a condensed form the main story of Jerusalem, though it begins at an earlier point than the whole work, telling of the unfallen state of man who is presented on the first page as already fallen or about to fall. In this unfallen state, the fields in the north, from east to west, the regions, that is, of instinctive life, both on the side of emotion and of that of sensual perception, were the supports of the holy imagination through pillars of intellect, brackets, gold being the metal of Urizen, close brackets. The imagination was the bride of the Lamb of God, happy in many lovely and innocent ways, and every idea of man was the child of Jesus and his bride, in the religion of forgiveness, refusing to impute sin. But the peace is broken, the intellectual powers are busied with the western region of building bodily things, brackets, in particular the sense of the tongue through which came the first sin, close brackets. And man falls into the sleep that we call life of the body, shadowed by the tree of mystery, and passing from inspired religion to that false faith that demands bodily instead of mental sacrifice. He enters into mortal sorrow, and his hard rational power, called by Blake Satan, separates itself from his loins, brackets the place of judgment, close brackets, and furiously enforces its legal morality. By this separation the imagination is also forced to depart, and passing eastward through mere emotionalism it is lost in grief. Further and further the reason asserts its dominion over the emotional life, and the happiness of man brackets, rivers, close brackets, becomes stained with sensuality. In every phase of mental life the place of the imagination is restricted, and the power itself is forced into the dark land of corporeal life. By such a system of religion man is convinced of his own mortality, equaling himself with the worms. But nothing can wholly obscure the glory of the divine within him, even in the weakness and transience of the life between birth and death. This state is common to all mankind, and the poet identifies himself with the man whose fall he has narrated, and calls on the Lamb of God, the divine image whom he crucified, but who still makes his perpetual appeal to the heart of man. He implores him to mould the spiritual and to repress the merely rational life 
with the love and fear of God. For the reason is to be mastered, not to be abandoned. In all its selfish cruelty and pride of intellectual war, it is still a true part of man, even when it tries to claim its own children, brackets the logical ideas, close brackets, have alone the right to exist. Though such a system is bound at last to be its own self-destruction, the true life knows no compulsion, but consists in mutual acceptance and forgiveness. For so can man be joined with man to build up Christianity, the religion of the imagination. The main story told in Jerusalem itself is essentially the same as this. The book tells of the separation and reunion of the fourfold man, and of the cruel rule of the spectre. But running parallel with the myth of Albion and Jerusalem is the myth of Los, who divides himself as a result of the division of Albion. And this story sometimes occupies a large space as the other. E.g. in the first chapter, which is concerned with Los from the last lines of page 5 to those of page 17, though the two myths are too much connected to be absolutely disentangled. Other stories are those of Hand as the typical son of Albion, and Reuben as the typical son of Jacob, brackets, pages 34 to 36, and elsewhere, close brackets. But indeed every character in the great myth has his own story of fall and redemption, so that even to enumerate them would require greater space than this brief introduction can afford. Nor is it possible to give a page-for-page -page paraphrase of the whole book, for apart from all question of space, the arrangement of Jerusalem is far more confused than that of any other of the engraved books. Blake seems, after recording the main myth, to have used it as a kind of storehouse for his more important visions. Pages have been engraved at various dates and inserted till the whole was finally arranged in four chapters of 25 pages each, with prefaces and separate illustrations. This method naturally involved pages being put in to make up the requisite number, or taken out to reduce it. And such separate visions as the beautiful and very late page 61 had places more or less appropriate found for them. But the extraordinary splendour of much of this somewhat chaotic material amply compensates for the lack of the more methodical arrangement of some of the shorter prophetical books, few of which attain to the magnificence of such passages as the close of the fourth chapter of Jerusalem. It is improbable that Blake will ever be found an easy or popular author. The elaborate symbolism will deter some who would otherwise be drawn to the teaching it veils, and others will be repelled by a hundred vehement rebellions against conventional religion and conventional morality. Rebels, the mystics, have often been, and had Blake been the leader of a school, or even a conforming member of a strict and orthodox church, he would certainly have fallen under the censure meted out to his great predecessors. John Erigena and Jacob Boehm. His lot has been the harder one of neglect. Neglect through the difficulty of obtaining and reading his books, a difficulty the present edition may help to remove. 
neglect too through the obscurity of his utterances, and his own indifference as to their fate. But it is not those who have read his works that have called him madman or blasphemer, for to read is, in some measure at least, to understand the truth, as he himself has said, can never be told so as to be understood and not to be believed. End of section.